Is yours on, Doc? Is it on? Any, any prayer requests? By the way, before we go, because I want to include her in our prayers, um, some of you may not remember her. Um, Jolie used to be a regular on Friday mornings for, for in and out for a couple of years. She's, she got busy with a job at the rec here in Grapevine, and I would see her occasionally, and we had a couple of interesting talks about family and struggles and um, but um, I have I have not been going to the wreck in the last year regularly the way I was before <clears throat> I just got too bogged down with my writing and I haven't been out I haven't been out much in the last six weeks but I got a letter from her um, this morning saying um, that um, some weeks ago her husband died if you know Jolie, she's a young woman. I mean, I, I had no wind of anything months ago the last time I saw her. But I want to include her and her husband. I think her husband's name is Mark. I'll ask her. I haven't written. I was in the middle of writing a letter, and I'll, I have to finish it. But, but I'd like to ask everybody to pray for Jolie and her husband. Um, in her note to me, she said she's trying to discern where to land is a, in a community and I was a little bit surprised because I thought St. Francis was her community but maybe she's between places and so has gone back and forth but um, her letter was spirited it just it, there was nothing morbid or heavy it, um, um, but I know she's grieving and I would be grateful if everybody would pray for her and her husband any any prayer request? We have one for our niece's husband, Scott Martin, uh, who's recently come down with the COVID. Okay. And apparently he's having real struggles with it. And uh, so we're all praying that he makes it through. How old is he, Fred? I'm going to uh, say late, 50. Late 40s, maybe 50. Probably late 40s, yeah. Yeah, and he has some blood clots. He's had uh, he's on a ventilator, um, and he's in pretty bad shape. So. Did he did he not get vaccinated? I don't know. I haven't asked that question. I'm, I've been I'm curious, really, but really sure. Yeah, I they uh, they live in uh, in the Houston area, and uh, we just we just found out recently that you know he was in the hospital in the ICU unit uh, being incubated. So we're we're hoping he pulls through it. He's got four four kids. kids. Four kids. I mean they're um, they're, they're pretty much on yeah, their own. Yeah, they're on their own at this point, but so yeah. I'd like to add yep. him in our prayers. Yep. He's there. So we just um, we're gonna start prayers but you started to say something, and something happened. Did did you want to pick it up, or? I have problems with the internet. I can't, it it just clicks on and off. I'm going crazy with it. But since I'm going to be traveling in two weeks, I'm just ignoring it at the moment and living through it. But I've, I've had a lot of trouble with AT and T, uh, and I've been looking at some streaming services, but I'm just kind of not up for trying in that short a period of time to yeah. figure out what it is I want to do. Well, any, 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 Tracy or Sue, do you have any prayer requests? We're going to say prayer and start. 
I do. My um, father-in-law has um, had pancreatic cancer and not spread into his bones, and so he there's nothing else they can do for him, and they're just trying to keep him comfortable. And we we got to see him. We've been going on the weekends to visit. They live in Decatur, not too far. Yeah. What's the prognosis? He's in his final days. Terminal. Yeah. Wow. Final, well, we don't know, but final time. Yeah, yeah. And what? I have a friend, Sandy, who is undergoing, at this point, radiation for breast cancer. Um, they've treated what I what sounds like fairly small problem with cannons, and I worry about her because she's having a lot of side effects. What's her name, Sue? Sandy. Sandy. Tracy, what's Robbie? Robbie. Robbie. Okay. God. Wow. <sighs> Name of the Father, Son, Ooh. Spirit. Yeah, and Barb. Um. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you and. Um, the gift of yourself through the day, the gift of yourself at Mass this morning, for your words to us. For all the many ways, you are never not here. Um, you are never not here. Holy Spirit, you are always present. Strange experience for us, because we're so eye-oriented. You know, you're invisible. Um, I'm asking for a special grace for all of us. Um, to make efforts to deepen our friendship with you, Spirit. Um, to not treat you as if you're not here because you're not visible. Um, to make you more part of our lives, to move with you. Um, this has sort of haunted me for the last month, so I'm going to offer it here. I've been reading, oh, I know, Mark is not here, because I, I mean, there's a number of people, but I'm sorry. For those of Tracy, you aren't here, but Mark... Mark's father went through a pretty serious problem and and Mark was involved in and reading scripture, reading scripture more. And I've been reading scripture um, to just to quiet, I mean, because it was a quiet time, you know, to sit and read. <coughs> um, you told the disciples, you got anger at them, actually, a number of times for their um, weakness in their faith and um, said that if their faith were as strong as it could be, they could move mountains. <laughs> he spoke in parables. I don't, he wasn't given to being figurative. I think he meant it. He cursed the um, fig tree and that and it withered. Um, if you can cast out demons, what can't you do? So it's just a serious question for me how strong the faith of any of us is, whether it's as strong as it should be, whether we really believe um, completely in what we ask of Him. So strengthen all of us, please, in our faith. Help us to become whole. The problem for so many of us is that our minds are so fine, we are so capable in our minds that we forget about matters of faith and I think don't turn to you enough. So strengthen us in our faith, please. Heal us 
of our infirmities and our sins. I have special graces for um, Jolie and her husband. Um, receive her husband into your kingdom, please. Um, wash away his sins. Let him know the joy he's longed for in his life. And if there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers help. I ask a special best blessing for her. What a loss. She's um, so young. Um, console her. Strengthen her in her faith. Let, let her faith get stronger in this trial. It's what we hope for all of our trials, that we'll be strengthened in our faith because of them. Um, be with um, Robbie um, in his um, last days. Prepare him to leave this world and to be with you. Um, and let all of those who love him um, take some consolation in, um, in, in knowing um, you, um, your great mercy, and how much you want all of us to come back to you. Um, see, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. Um, Sandy, um, Sue, remind me. I'm sorry, Sandy. Oh, remind me again. To, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. We prayed for her. Um, um, watch over her. Um, um, are they going to have surgery? They've already done that. They've done a lumpectomy, but then they followed it with chemo and now radiation. She's having breathing problems and some heart yeah, reaction. Yeah, and yeah. I just think, I mean, I've had a lot of friends go through this, and it's serious, but she seems to be getting a full treatment as if she'd had a lot more cancer yeah, than right, she did. Right. I worry that it's doing her more harm than been good, so I hope the doctors know what they're doing. Yeah, so do we all. Um, watch over yeah. her in this trial. Um, we expect too much from doctors too often, I think. Um, give them, grant them light to their minds to help them in what they see and a prudence in how they proceed and whatever goes on with them, be with her. Um, help her to find a strength in you that um, she won't have in herself. Um, I'm sorry. Help me. Fred, did I... What's his nephew? Scott. 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 Um, God, sorry. R remind me. I'm sorry. Oh, COVID. COVID. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gone. Wow. Wow. Be with him and his wife and his kids. Um, my goodness. Um, he's it's not old. Um, um, surround him with your protection. Heal him. Heal him. Um, um, help him to recover and regain his strength. And um, your will. Um, whatever happens, let everybody take a good out of this. I, I think so many of I mean, one of the things that certainly happens for me in this group, because we hear about people passing all the time, is the question about where our faith is, where our trust is, whether it's in this world or the next. Strengthen all of us to put our trust in you and whatever goes on. This is not our home. So 
whatever happens with all of these people help them to be strengthened in in turning to you um, and help all of us who are in a position of caring for these people um, do that and somehow still let go um, let our hearts be filled with genuine love for these people that we care about and also leave them um, in trust to you um, let a blessing be upon us tonight and all that we do um, oh um, be with Bev in her recovery um, she's doing well um, but she is recovering and there's more work ahead for her as well and from what we've heard Barb's operation went well be with her in her recovery and and I hope she hears this help her to find a car because we want to see her soon we offer these prayers in your name um, help all of us in our recoveries not just physically but spiritually in our lives too we offer these prayers in your name Christ our Lord amen amen okay I wanna what I'd like to do very very briefly I gave you guys um, homework last week um, and you're not being here is no excuse Tracy so I tried to review today because <laughs> it's been a while since I read those chapters um, I want to just very very quickly go over some of the issues that Chesterton raised in suicide of thought you remember that he opened orthodoxy um, in that amazing facetious amazingly facetious comic way he has of having fun with things but I, 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 I can't read him without always being astonished he he's so perceptive of the subtlest wrongs in the world he, he does not make black things things black and white his mind is too too given to nuances and, and whatever the wrongs are he always treats them with humor and some charity and facetiously I mean he has he, there's a spirit I there's no other word that I know of it's gratitude that he is so grateful for the world that even where he's finding wrongs he um, he never lets anything get in the way of treating it in charity with some humor there's always a great hope something going on anyway late in the opening chapters he laid bare some of the disorders of the modern world and the most general is this tendency of the human in the modern mind the intellect um, to look at the world and see something and reduce it in some ways he uses the word contraction this this combination of a intellectual contraction um, and um, um, a lack of heart for want of a better word and he even went on to say that he, he really believes that that mindset, this tendency to be reductive in the way we use our minds, is widespread, far more widespread than people know. Um, in Suicide of Thought, in the third chapter, he, he backs that up and looks at, identifies a number of specific lines of thought that contribute to this insanity, this, this loss of this loss of virtue, this loss of um, a kind of intellectual rectitude, the, the way we use our minds, um, 
we're all aware of it. I mean, you can't you can't follow the news today and not hear strident voices everywhere. It's just a it's like listening to um, witches and werewolves, and it's just howling. And anyway, in three in Suicide of Thought, he identifies a number of specific um, beliefs or philosophies. Um, some of them coming from the sciences, some of them outside of it, that are contributing to this general unhinging of the mind. They were, he said, that one of the problems with Christianity in the modern world is that humility has been disassociated from where it should be and put in the wrong place. And I want to underscore that because we, and it's, it, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to hear priests encouraging all of us to grow in humility. It's something we all want, I think. Chesterton's saying, humility was meant to go as a curb with ambition. The trouble today is that people are um, connecting it with their convictions where it doesn't belong because it's preventing people from standing up speaking. People today are too polite they're too concerned what people will think instead of speaking up, even in public, even in church. Instead of speaking up, um, they, they cloak things or cover them. It's been one of the great themes in all of our reading. You know that, in, in particularly Faulkner and uh, Melville, that people are far more concerned about respectability than they are truth um, or witnessing. Because to witness Christ is to put us at risk. Hi, Mark. I'm just we're we're just starting Chesterton. Um, our first concern should be the truth, and and we should have convictions about that truth and live them, not hide them. Um, um, and he says that it's it's the breakup of Christendom that led to the breakup of the Christian virtues. So instead of all of faith, hope, and charity coming together, they get broken up and divided. And when they do, um, they, they create more problems than they help. And he says that one of the problems of our age is a lack of intellectual conviction, that reason cannot stand on its own anymore. Um, it, it, it can't take a starting place, it can't finish, it can't make an argument. And he says, it, partly it's because of a loss of faith, that to reason at all requires a faith, because if you've been following what I said before all of this happened, remember, um, reason itself has to start on a self-evident truth. Reason has to start on a self-evident truth. If you take away that self-evident ground, reason will undo itself. People are just as likely to say, with their reason, I have no reason to live. Or, this guy has no reason to live and kill him. Um, the starting point of reason or self is a self-evident truth. Um, now, let me stop with that, because that, that, that to me is, it's so obvious to me, because I've it's been a principle forever, and I know I introduced it to you guys, I don't know, months ago, but when we were doing um, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Is that clear? The start, Lewis is the whole basis of his argument in Abolition of Man is the starting point for our thinking are all those practical maxims. 
obey your father, um, love your wife, you know, all of those things. Those are the grounds of reason. If you look beyond them, you won't find a ground. You'll just keep seeing through things endlessly, which means you'll, it'll be impossible for you to reason. So um, reason itself has to begin on a self-evident truth, something that can't be disputed. Because if you go through that, reason undoes itself. And Chesterton is saying that's what happens, created a skepticism, people can't think well. But let me go back. Is it clear that you have to start with a self-evident truth? The, the, the first principle of thought, of thinking, is the law of non-contradiction. That's the first principle. A chair cannot be here and not be here at the same time. That's a fundamental starting point. It's on the basis of that you can say, Suzanne's sitting there, and um, that's a fact. I can't question. I'm sitting here. You guys are all where you are. If you doubt those things, then reason's going to doubt everything. The first principle of our moral action is do good to others, avoid evil. That's the first principle. It's on the basis of that you can make arguments and reason, okay? Chesterton is saying that people have lost their ability to reason because reason itself rests on a faith that something is true. You start there. So only on the basis of that you can argue. And where religion goes wrong, reason goes wrong. So it's important to protect um, our natural uses of reason in everything we do because it's on the basis of that that so much gets built up. Okay. He identifies forms of thinking, kinds of thinking that undo reason. They were materialism, evolution, nominalism, progress, pragmatism, and what he called a worship of the will. Materialism, these are in my notes by the way that I gave you guys online. Materialism, evolution, nominalism, progress, the theory of progress. <coughs> that is the perfectibility of man. Pragmatism and um, um, an idolatry of the will. Materialism is the belief that all things have their basis in matter. Thomas refutes that because he says, that can't be true because there are all sorts of things that are made of matter that have no life at all. Evolution has got a blind side to it uh, because if evolution is true, then there's nothing to know because what was true one moment won't be the same the next. There's no form to things. They just keep changing. You can't identify things. To, to make a definition of something means to put it in a species. It's put it in a class to identify its form. Um, basketball is a sport, da-da-da-da-da-da. By putting it in that class, I can define it. Um, evolution takes away that class. It takes away the forms of things. Things are constantly changing. Nominalism says there are no classes. Nominalism says there's only particulars. That the only things are because outside of our minds, outside of our minds, nothing exists except particular things. This book, this computer, this desk, this chair, right? My glasses. 
nominalist says there's no universals. There's only particulars. What's the danger of that thinking? Does anybody, can anybody respond to that? There are no classes, there are no universals. I've been reading about this just a tiny little bit, and uh, I don't understand it. But uh, um, so I don't know how to answer your question. But to add to what you just said about no particulars or only particulars, not universals. Right. Evidently, uh, it goes back to the med- medieval times and an uh, argument about what is in a name, and that the particulars, like this apple, is related to that apple because. They're both apples. Right. So it's just this one apple. And so what is the implication of this is what you're asking, I think, and I, I don't know. Yeah. But, I, but just a little bit more, uh, another example of this apple and this apple are not related. Yeah, except, yeah. What, well, here, Tracy, what's the irony of that? This apple and this they apple are not related. Re- well, no. I mean, if if they're not related, you couldn't call them both apples. Apples. I mean, it's that simple. The the nominals will say all trees are particulars. That's it. But if they're only particulars, you couldn't call them trees. They share a quality. There's some. There's a nature they share have in common. So how would anybody be able to say that? It's- say what? Well, how does it become an argument that's lasted since the medieval times? Actually, it, it existed long before that. Socrates and Plato had to deal with the two. It became a crucial issue in the in the Middle Ages because if you deny universals, you end up denying God and the Trinity. That's why it was such a crucial issue in Christianity. I mean, why it really took on a seriousness that was even graver than in um, Plato's time. It, it it seems like if you if you if you take that to the point of everything's a particular or it it is unique in itself, then you you kind of lose the mystery of it all. That that there's that you know all all things are in some way related, and there's a a commonality to it all. And I think and I don't know where that fits into this discussion, but. In in um, Chesterton's Fairyland discussion, I mean, it, it seems like it, it it fits into that because if you if you get lost in this fixation that you know everything is is as it as it appears and there's nothing common in any of this, then we we sort of lose that that mystique that mysticism. That, that is our faith and it seems like that's a large part of what's going on in the world today mm-hmm. everybody's just focused on you know a, a concept or an idea or a belief and we just we just kind of lost the commonality of the human race of, of Americana Chester even says that he says well, I don't know if that's where you're going but that's kind of what it yeah, says no. Chester actually says that too Fred and um, that what we have in common is far more important than what, you know, what distinguishes us. Um, the the I mean I I want to I want to be careful of our time because so many of these things are philosophic and, you know, they belong in a philosophy course in in a university. But 
to try to do them justice in the time we have here. One of the problems in, of denying um, universals and claiming that only particulars are real, that if that's true, you have no basis for distinguishing colors as colors, or what was your example, um, apples as apples? If they were totally unrelated, you couldn't tell that one was an apple and the other one wasn't. The fact that they're both apples means you see that they have something in common. You can't say all trees are just different, or you couldn't call them trees. You can only call them that because they have something in common. If you deny it, there's no, there's no, I mean, at a more important level for me, there's no way to make a judgment about justice. Justice assumes a law, a universal, that we can appeal to and apply to this case. If we don't, we have no basis on which to make a judgment. There's nothing to turn to. What you do is make up arbitrary man-made conventions, you know, to get you through these things. But So, um, anytime we deny universals, we're taking, a, we're undermining a ground of judgment. Some appeal that we make to a great, to um, a universal that has a reality at its own level and the mind can grasp it like justice or law or being or trees or trees as Socrates would say treeness or bedness or um, the theory of progress he dismisses pretty quickly all the evidence shows even though there's a lot of technological pro uh, progress in our world morally spiritually we're no better now than we were at Homer's time or Plato's time if you remember the Odyssey and I'm sure many of you won't, but if you if you look, this is Homer in 800 BC. In the Odyssey, Homer has presented two peoples, the Cyclops and the Phaeacians. Remember, the Phaeacians are very sophisticated. Everything they do is full of art and um, fineness, dancing, boats, technology. The Cyclops are barbarian. They lived together at one point, and the Phaeacians moved away because the... Um, the Cyclops were so barbaric. So Homer's showing us what the Bible shows us, interestingly, that both good and bad people came out of Eden. If you look at the line from Seth and, and um, Adam and Eve's descendants, you watch lines diverge, but some of the lines become given to um, dissolution and illicit things and the other lines are better. Um, so the biblical understanding is that good and bad came out of evil, you know, and they, they carried down in those two pools. Um, to worship the will, um, Chesterton makes the point that it makes no sense to make the will the basis of things instead of reason. Um, you can't will all things. To will one things means you can't have other things. Will involves a choice. I will have this. Either that or you don't have a will in the matter and you turn it over to somebody else to have their will. Um, the will the will cannot be the legislative power. Reason is the power, the, the will f follows it. Um, and basically what he does is to take on those popular lines of thought and critiques them at the outset um, 
remember what he's doing is trying to defend a sort of sketchy picture philosophy of his life to make sense of of his remember he he wrote heretics and some people were so upset by his criticisms of major thinkers at that time they wanted him to defend his own philosophy so he begins by tackling all these what what he calls these prominent disorders of the modern world okay and and in ethics of elfland he he starts by making a distinction between elfland and the scientific world so once again he's he's taking on the intellectual world on one side but appealing to what he came to love as a of a child growing up which is fairy tales and on the basis of those two things trying to clarify what what's at issue here and i want to stop right now because last week i asked if you guys could come with questions of your own and i you know um, I, I don't know what your questions are, but I throw it open to you guys. We're dealing with the same chapter, so even if the questions are radically different, they ought to dovetail someplace because they're all going to the, you know, ethics of Elfland. So let me let me turn it to you guys for a minute. Any questions that you guys have that you'd like to start with? Mark, you're laughing. Come on, what is it? Get. Let's hear it. Okay, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, yeah, I'm laughing because I didn't get through Elfland. I got through Suicide of Thought. And this is just, I, I guess, unbelievably deep. It's almost, it spins in my head enough that I'm trying to... Uh, I'll put it like when I used to argue with my ex-wife. You're trying to remember to, to make a point, and you want to answer it, right? But you don't get a chance to, and they keep talking for like five minutes, and then you lose your point, and then you have no idea where you're at, right? So that's kind of how I felt reading it. And I had, I mean, I underlined a bunch of things and a bunch of phrases. Um, what struck me is that it would be better for me to have some more modern examples with which to kind of put some of these things with, because he's using older examples of his time, right? Yeah. Um, they haven't changed and, much, by the way. But I'm sorry again? They haven't changed much. They, they still well, dominate the our thinking. The concepts haven't changed, yeah. but it would be easier, I guess, as a reference, right, to have a more modern reference. It might be easier yeah, for me to yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, but, but I did notice that it's, you know, some of the stuff that he's talking about, it's like, this is stuff we're fighting today. And he wrote it about 100 years ago. And... The, I guess the, the unbelievable foresight, or may, maybe it's not even foresight. Maybe he was just that damn smart, uh, you, you know, to kind of see what the problems yeah, and yeah, where it would yeah, lie. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I, and I and I realized that reading this, and I don't know if I'm smart enough to read this. No, you <laughs> are. Mean, you are more. Mark, you know, the fact that the fact. Sorry for the fact that you no, would even say that shows your. By the way, to, but I. So I don't. I don't have a question about that. You are more than smart enough to read it. But to go back to your opening comment, I, I'm sorry I lost the word, but um, I wish I could get it. But you were saying that it's it's, it's almost too much that's intelligent to get all at once. It's so deep, and I I could not agree more with you. The part of the beauty I've loved Chesterton since I first read him, because he writes as a journalist, so he's not like Kant, 
or uh -huh. Heidegger or some modern philosopher, you could you couldn't read a page of their writing and and feel like you're dealing with a human being. When you read Chesterton, you're reading you're you're reading a journalist who's speaking to ordinary people. But I mm -hmm. think I and I'm not exaggerating. I think he has the most brilliant mind of almost anybody in the 20th century. Um, so what you're dealing with is I think really I think really profound. He helps us to see things about our powers of reason and our faith that ordinarily. Hold on, I'll just and I want to hold on just to underline this for a second. Um, this is the stunning thing about Chesterton. Um, I, because, you know, I'm, I'm writing and I'm dealing with some of the concepts Chesterton's dealing with. Um, I, I can't write like him. I don't have the humor. I love his heart. I wish mine were more like his. Um, but I can hear myself making statements. He will use very ordinary things He'll appeal to writings of his time, Huxley and Wells and, you know, George Bernard Shaw and all. Um, so you're right. I mean, they're, they're related to his time, and it would probably be easier if he could relate. But they do apply. We just need to carry them over. But he's, he's, hold on. Just, he says this at the end of Ethics of Elfland. Very last line. All of this I felt at the age gave me no encouragement to feel it. He grew up feeling absolutely not at home. That everything the world believed, he—I mean, he—he he gave himself to thinking that it was right because it was the way the world thought, and then discovered it was all wrong. And then he ends that chapter saying, "And all this time I had not even thought of Christian theology." So everything he's doing is contained within the natural order. That's his orientation. He's mm -hmm. not dealing with matters of faith. He's dealing with the natural goodness of the world. And it, what, what's extraordinary about Chesterton, he's doing it at a time when modern philosophies are doing everything they can to demean the world, to make it dark. It's part of, I mean, we'll get to the, you know, we're going to get to this, this, elf, this Elfland um, chapter. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and the irony is he's dealing with the natural order, things mm -hmm. in the world. But, so that list I gave you, materialism, evolution. Nominalism, progress, pragmatism, the will. The, those terms are the dominant terms of the way we think today. And if you talk with people whose thinking is guided by those, you'll know that you'll get into an argument. I mean, you, you'll find, you either got to find a point where you have some common agreement, or you'll talk past each other. Um, Chet, the amazing thing about Chesterton, he's showing that you can answer those things with reason. He doesn't make an appeal to faith. He's using reason to show there's something wrong with people who use reason to defend these, what he calls these insane theories. So, anyway, let's. Um, any questions? Can you, anybody frame a question? Anybody have a question? Can we pull a question out of here? To I'll try to pull a question out. I guess we've been, you know, Francis says. Uh, been getting these gospels readings from Bishop Baron or Baron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and lately there's been a lot in there about children. And I guess when, you know, he mentioned when he was a child in Elfland. And what, what struck me out of that, and I guess the question is did, did anyone else get 
anything similar to this out of it. But what 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 seems to be his point that just really hit home to me, and it seems like Bishop Barron's trying to get there too with some of his some of his readings is that we've lost we've lost the imagination, the ability to get out of our 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 reason to a certain extent. And if we can't explain it, then it does it, it doesn't exist. And so what happens and what we in my mind what we see going on today is so many different people have their fixation on what they believe to be true. And they are just totally incapable of getting out of that into some kind of or questioning themselves, yeah. You know, mind expansion that says, you know, there there may be a different viewpoint. And and so we, as Mark said, we just people just keep talking past each other, over each other, uh, because we we've lost what I think Chesterton was getting at is that if we can't if we can't experience that mind expansion, that getting out of our our current fixation and 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 think that there might be something else out there that we don't have our arms around, we're we're lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're yeah. We and and if we get in, and I, I think what he was saying is, if we get stuck in that, it's basically insanity. I mean, we can't get beyond that. Yeah. No. And I, I don't know if anybody else, you know, got out of that anything similar to that. But to me, it was extraordinarily profound and very real today. That if we can't, if we can't get out of this. Fixed mindset. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to us. You yeah, know? no, no. Well, the interesting thing was as true then as it is now. You know, I mean, we're still Western civilization is still here. Although I have, I don't, I don't, I don't. Maybe I don't want to go down on record. Um, but we're dealing with the same things. I think we're we're farther along in a decline. Um, and I think Mark was right on. I think Chesterton. I just think he was so brilliant that he saw the implications of it early on more than other people or he couldn't have written what he did C.S. Lewis, I, I have not read an essay of C.S. Lewis's that doesn't take off from Chesterton C.S. Lewis is closer to us he's dealing, he's responding to the same disorders he partly cut his teeth on Chesterton I mean Chesterton is the one who led to his conversion he argues differently It's a very, his, his, Chesterton goes everywhere Lewis cuts right to a point he's much sharper, bare, straighter but the arguments are the same. They're just the same. So they're, both of them are dealing with the same disorders. I think our culture is farther into a decline than it was at Chesterton times or T.S. Lewis. But both of them saw where we were going. So, um, I, I, Fred was asking a question. I think his question was, did anybody else see it um, roughly in the way that he was looking at it? Does anybody want to pick up on if, Fred's question? Yeah, I'll do it. If I'm understanding your question correctly, is that, did you see anything that relates to what we're seeing today? The insanity, the... Well, but the fairyland, the focus was fairyland because Baron was, I gather from uh, Baron... Oh, okay, well, okay, I'm not a Baron fan, but I, and I didn't get to fairyland, so I can't talk to that one. So. If we can just hold on to that for a minute, because that's the title of, he was, um, Baron was... And, and part of Fred's question was, the imagination was important to this chapter, and it's an, it's an important element of fairyland. 
um, are are we losing something in our and ch- our in some ways our children losing something um, because of what's going on in schools and the way we think and these theories? I mean, I don't even want to get going on on what people are doing in schools today. The 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 social indoctrinating, you know, that's going on in the classroom that kids are being. So here, I, to, I, I want to try to keep to the and not get off. In Abolition of Man, you remember that Lewis was presenting the argument that the educators that he was criticizing in the first chapter were making claims that he showed were not true. That the cost of it would be we would lose our capacity to feel. If we followed them, we would have no way of developing our emotions. In the next chapter, remember, he was talking about working on the trunk. He was using a Confucius working on the trunk, that there was something there, the way, the Tao. So the responsibility of teachers was to pass that on, that there's a way. In the Old Testament, God created a way, there's an order. That was true for Confucius, it was true for in the Tao, you know, Eastern religions, some of them. It's true for Christianity and Judaism. Um, and he was arguing that increasingly, People are denying the existence of a Tao away, and um, and they've become conditioners, um, indoctrinating, um, um, wanting people to do things the way they believe should be done because they've got these ideologies, these theories in their heads. So today in the classrooms kids are being asked to do things to conform to certain ideologies, certain political beliefs. Teachers are not, they're they're not standing in the position of having received a tradition, a way, a trunk, the tree, and passing it on. They're actually trying to create a new kind of world, a utopian it's really a utopian sort of socialistic world. I'm sorry, I'm getting off, but Fred's question was, is apparently in the context of what Barron's been teaching, um, are, I'm sorry, Fred, if, if I'm not, are, are we losing a sense of the imagination and, and some awareness that there's more going on than these concepts, and is it affecting kids and what's being taught? And and more importantly, because I want to get to the chapter, what does this have to do with Chesterton's fairyland? What's he saying about fairyland? He's an older man, and he's defending fairyland in a world that's pretty much denying it. Tracy. I'm trying to find this sentence at the very last. It says... Um, Very last paragraph, there was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Whatever it meant, it meant violently, which there's our violence again from the violent barren way, maybe. Um, Well, so he's saying that there's a, a creator, and I don't know where people think they come from, but um, to not... to. <laughs> Be a, so absorbed, uh, yeah. That you, uh, well, I mean, I see it every day that people don't 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 even. The word mystery is not part of the vocabulary. Uh, right, they don't right. have a a concept of that. And when you and I've 
talk to people when you need answers and you see everything as black and white you just end up in this place of really i can't tell you how many people i've said i want to believe but i do not because there are no answers see that's why i think reason i just i i have a dear friend who's um um, a catechist in the catholic church he's one of the finest men i've ever met big paul bunyan sort of a figure very laughs he reminds me of chesterton and I, he, he emphasizes faith in the catechism, and I, he should. He's very articulate, a sound use of reason. But when we talk, I, I, I constantly find myself saying that I think right now this war we're in has got to be fought on the ground at a level of reason. If we don't help people recover powers of reasoning so that they can think better and answer these problems that Chester and Chesline, you know, um, identified for us, then we're going to lose the battle. Faith is important, and, and I think that's a function of the Protestant world, or certainly a fundamentalist world that we live in, because it disparages reason. If we don't recover this ground, I think we're going to lose faith. Um, we've got to be able to give an account and answer, show what's wrong. I mean, that's why Chester has been such an important figure for me. Here, let me let me let me come at this. I'm going to ask you guys a question. When he begins, he says that he found himself coming out of the cradle, the nursery room with two fundamental beliefs. Now, that's his broad way of describing what he could not have described as a kid. But he grew up with these two principles that were so much a part of his life that I don't think he could see himself living without them. One of them was democracy, and the other one was tradition. That those two things were absolutely fundamental to everything he thought. He says on, um, in the second page into the chapter, it's the paragraph, this is the first principle of democracy. That the, this is, goes to your point, friend. That the essential things in men are the things they hold in common, not the things they hold separately. The second principle is merely this, that the political instinct or desire is one of those things which they hold in common. Falling in love is more poetical than dropping into poetry. The democratic contention is that government is a thing like falling in love and not a thing like dropping into poetry. It's not something analogous to playing the church organ, punting, it goes on. It is, on the contrary, a thing analogous to writing one's own love letters or blowing one's nose. The point, you do those things on your own. When you fall in love and you write a love letter or a sonnet to the, your beloved, it can be awful, but it's who you are. Nobody can do that for you. Only you can do that, um, or, or the love relation won't be a love relation. These things we want a man to do for himself, even if he does them badly. I'm not here arguing the truth of any of these conceptions. I know that some moderns are asking to have their wives chosen by scientists. We live in a world in which science would like to do genetics, abortion. One of, one of Lewis's arguments, remember, by using contraceptions, we're already limiting what the next generation can do. We're partly determining its shape. There's one thing that I've never, from my youth, been up to being able to understand. I've never been able to understand where people got the idea that democracy was in some ways opposed to tradition. It's obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time. 
It's trusting to a consensus of common human voices rather than some isolated or arbitrary record. Tradition means giving voices, giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. You, in some ways, they overlap. Tradition and democracy almost mean the same thing. There's this living thing going on involving the past. Remember, Christ said, I'm the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So even in his life, the people with him are alive, not dead. Chester can't he won't separate those two things. All, all Democrats object to men disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. God, is he good. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our groom. Tradition asks not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our father. <laughs> so he says, I've had these great loves from the beginning of his life. Now, I, here's my question to, to, to try to narrow this down. What's the difference between the scientific mindset of the men he's being critical of? This, and, and let me not limit it to science. What's the trouble with these, the intellectual mindset of modern man at large? If I can, I'm trying to be as general as I can and still be just to him. What's the difference between the intellectual mindset of modern man and fairyland? Why does he put those two things up against each other? What purpose does it serve? <clears throat> Where's that? Where's that? Oh, here. On, on my page, it's about four pages in. Um, just before the paragraph, here's the peculiar perfection of tone. In the middle of the preceding paragraph, he talks about men who are basing their thinking on what they call scientific laws. There's an enormous difference by the test of fairyland, which is the test of the imagination. You cannot imagine two and one not making three, but you can easily imagine trees not growing fruit. You can imagine them growing golden candlesticks or tigers hanging on by the tail. These men in spectacles spoke much about a man named Newton who was hit by an apple and who discovered a law, but they could not be got to see the distinction between a true law, a law of reason, and the mere fact of apples falling. If the apple hit Newton's nose, Newton's nose hit the apple. By the way, that is Boethius' argument when he said, how did he put it? If you're sitting in the tree, or if you're sitting in the chair, it's a necessity that you're sitting in the chair. Because remember, he's talking about whether foreknowledge determines something, whether the fact that you see it makes it so. And he's trying to make a distinction between two kinds of necessities. This, this is straight out of Boethius. That's a true necessity, because we cannot conceive the one occurring without the other. But we can quite well conceive the apple not falling on his nose. We can fancy it flying ardently through the air to hit some other nose, of which it had some more definite dislike. <laughs> there are times when you'd like to throw an apple to certain people, I'm sure. We have always in our fairy tales kept this sharp distinction between the science of mental relations in which there really are laws and the science of physical facts in which there are no laws but only weird repetitions. 
We believe in bodily miracles, but not in mental impossibilities. We, this is Fairland. We believe that a beanstalk climbed up to heaven, but that does not at all confuse our convictions on the philosophic question of how many beans make five. He says, um, a scientist still cannot figure out how a chicken comes out of an egg. He knows that it happens, right? But he doesn't know the why. So what's the, what's why is he what's he doing in setting up this distinction between the sciences, the way he's using Newton, and fairyland? What's the difference between why is it important? I will go out on a limb here. Good. I think, I think the Newton story is is a great one because if you if you look at a lot of what is going on today and the and the focus of you know the what you what you visually see and or believe even and 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 it must be true if Newton was just sitting under this tree and got hit with an apple he would have just said okay all apples fall from trees and land on your head but what what Newton did with that information was he said and and this is where I think Elfland comes into play he says there must be something bigger than that there must be a reason for that to have happened because otherwise you know some of the, the people the talking heads today would have said okay well bottom line is apples fall out of trees and land on the ground you know I can't speak for oranges or pears or anything else but I know that apples fall out of trees but Newton believed that there had to be something bigger than that and in order to actually figure out what that was he developed calculus to do it and ultimately came up with the gravitational theory and so it doesn't just apply to apples it applies to anything falling out of trees or off of towers or anything else and to me that's that's the distinction if if we listen to people talking today and they're absolutely convinced that this particular truth is is absolute and it is not willing to think beyond that to imagine beyond that there's a lot more to the story that will never be told yeah and that and in fairness to science that will unfold because um e even though that was taken i mean as, as um, fred's describing it in an ab absolute sense it's hard for me to imagine that um bohr's or heisenberg's theories of of, or, or Einstein's relativity or indeterminacy or you know any of those theories or time bending back on itself or um, non-parallel I mean those systems that they don't in some ways modify what Newton did then because science is always unfolding you, it, there's more to learn let me read this on and it's a, a page beyond where I was in fairyland we avoid the word law, but in the land of science they are singularly fond of it. Thus they would call some interesting conjecture about how forgotten folks pronounce the alphabet, Grimm's Law. Go on, go down, or if you're on that paragraph. A law implies that we know the nature of the generalization. Oh, let me repeat that. A law implies that we know the nature of the generalization and enactment, not merely that we have noticed some of the effects if there's a law that pickpockets shall go to prison, it implies that there's an, 
imaginable mental connection between the idea of prison and the idea of picking pockets. By the way, there's a universal again. I mean, that's, that's Chesterton refuting nominalism, that he's going to a universal concept that will apply in, in particular instances, because there's more than particulars. We've got this idea. We can say why we take liberty from a man who's taken liberties, but we cannot say why an egg can turn into a chicken any more than we can say why a bear could turn into a fairy prince. As ideas, the egg and the chicken are further off from each other than the bear and the prince. It goes, granted then that certain transformations do happen, it's essential that we should regard them in the philosophic manner of fairy tales, not in the unphilosophic manner of science and the laws of nature. When we're asked why eggs turn to birds or fruits fall in autumn, we must ex answer exactly as the fairy godmother. As, um, when as Cinderella did when her the mice turned into or the horse turned into mice or it's not a law, for we do not understand its general formula. It's not a necessity, for though we can count on it happening practically, we have no right to say that it must always happen. We don't know. Now, this is where this is going. This is crucial. We risk the remote possibility of a miracle as we do that of a poison pancake or a word-destroying comet. Things happen. We leave it out of account, not because it's a miracle and therefore an impossibility, but because it's a miracle and therefore an exception. All the terms used in science books, law, necessity, order, tendency, and so on, are really unintellectual because they assume an intersynthesis which we do not possess. The only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in fairy books, charm, spell, enchantment. Okay, let me go back to my question. What, what's the point why is he setting science and the way he's presenting it off against fairyland and the way he's presenting it? Well, it's interesting that... Can you hear Doc? Can you guys hear? That um, when Chesterton's talking about apples falling, he refers to the scientific law of gravity. And we all do. We talk about the law of gravity. Um, when Newton talked about it, he talked about it as the theory of gravity. It's something that is, he's thinking about it, he's open to it, it repeats itself often, but it's not a law, it's a theory. I don't know, because I don't know if that, Fred would know the answer to that, if that's so the way Newton Fred just referred to it as the yeah. theory of gravity. Let me jump in here and offer um, a couple of thoughts because um, I want to I want to see if we can't um, get to the end of this essay just to help tie it together a little bit. One of the reasons he's con as concerned as he is about science, particularly in coming out of the 19th century as he did. Remember we saw this with Hemingway when we talked about Hemingway and the influences of the sciences and Darwin and Freud and Marx, um, particularly those, Feuerbach and others. Um, all of them deny man's free will. They, are, they all believe that man is a product of these forces over which he has no control, these physical material forces. Um, um, Fred, who was the scientist? It wasn't Newton. Um, 
who looked at nature as a clock wound up and set in motion. Um, it's the name of that dermatologist that. Um, anyway, the the, the 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 theory coming out of the sciences are are largely mechanistic because they're dealing principally with material forces which are often determined. If you accept that model of the universe and it's become more and more accepted in, in our time than it was even then and, and it dominated people's minds then, there's no free will, there's no place for miracles. The value of, for the people who think like the, that way is they think it's all predictable, that this is always going to happen. This is the way things, it's a law. If it's a law, it's inalterable. It can't be other, it can't be changed. It can't be other than it is. You can predict it. It gives you the value of predictability. But, but it also, it, I mean, it's a closed world. And that's why Chesterton used those terms of reduction and um, uh, a concentrated effect. In fairyland, the, it, you can't read a, a, fairy, a fairy tale without being aware that there are laws, um, but that things could have been different because there are trees in which the trees are golden. The apples are golden apples. That's one of the f major fairy tales. Houses can be made of gingerbread or um, a young man of the son of a, of a woman can climb a beanstalk to heaven and, you know, get a goose that lays eggs and so um, one of the startling things about fairyland is our awareness that things could be other than they are. For the scientist, that's not true. Things can't be other than they are. Things are fixed. They're determined. They're laws that constitute everything. So you've got a contained universe. It's narrow. Um, and one of the ironies of that view, obviously, is that Science is, all, and I've made this point before, science is accretional, it's corrective, it's constantly building, correcting itself, adding new knowledge. Um, so it's, it's never quite as fixed as it seems at the time. The other thing is that in fairyland, um, there are consequences to breaking a law because things can be different. In a mechanistic determined world, they can't be. Things are fixed, and this is this is one of the one of the consequences of these two views. Hold on. Um, a few pages in from where I was just reading, um, after he says that, um, let's see if I can't make this argument a little bit more focused. Um, it's been a truth since Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, Augustine, all of them, that um, man can know that something is true. He can give an account of something. He cannot know the why of it. That's beyond our knowledge. To know that means you're going to get in the mind of God's ideas, who is the creator of things. That's the original source of these things. What we do is give an account of things. It can be a mathematical account. So you can, you can express the, the fall of an apple in terms of its velocity or weight. You can put that in terms of a mathematical equation. And it'll be precise because it's mathematical. But it does not explain why. We can know that things are so, given a count. But we cannot know why. 
Um, to do that is to to assume that we can go back to take a position with God, because He's the ultimate source of all things. He knows the why of those things, and the scientist by his presumptions, rules God out. He can't go there. He's got to explain things without going there. Um, so things in, in the scientific world become reductive. They get fixed in a system. They're determined. There's no allowance for miracles um, by people who think strictly in that way. Good scientists don't. I, mean, sci- um, I think Einstein believed in God, and I think most good scientists do. Chesterton says this about fairyland. As one can see it, it will simply read Grimm's fairy tales or the fine collection of Mr. Andrew Lang. For the pleasure of pedantry, I will call it the doctrine of conditional joy. Touchstone talk much virtue in an if. According to elfin ethics, all virtue is an if. All virtue is an if. Conditional. They are conditions. That means they're not fixed. The note of the fairyland utterance always is, you may live in a palace of gold and sapphire if you do not say the word cow, or you may live happily with a king's daughter if you do not show her an onions. The vision always hangs upon a veto. All the dizzy and glossy things conceded depend upon one small thing withheld. All joy depends on our not doing something. We can have a happy marriage if we don't play around. We can have an ordinary life if we don't drink too much or take drugs or, I mean, you name it. All happiness rests on not doing something, withholding, saying no, that there are conditions and limits. In the fairy tale, an incomprehensible happiness rests upon an incomprehensible condition. A box opened and all evils fly out. <clears throat> a word is forgotten and cities perish. A lamp is lit and love flies away. One of the arguments that I remember making, and I mean it's ages ago now, you guys won't remember, but I remember saying to you when we were doing the Iliad, you know, most of the men in the Iliad, Agamemnon, Priam, the Trojan king, they make these decisions and they're, they're making them assuming that they're making the right decision. And yet what, what Homer's showing us in almost every one of the major decisions taken in the early part of that book is the consequences of the decisions are disasters. One of the points I made is that men live in a mist. They keep making these decisions with all the best intentions without seeing that sometimes there are consequences they don't see. We live in a fallen world. Oedipus thought he saw everything. He didn't. Killed his father, married his mother. That's why Freud made hay out of it. There are... So we don't live in a fixed, determined world. There are things that we do that often have consequences that we can't foresee um, so when he says, I mean, I, the examples are so perfect. These are all from fairy, fairy stories. Sorry, hold on. A word is, a box is open and all evils fly out. Pandora's box. If the guy had known that would happen, would he have opened the box? No. He didn't know. 
Everything we do shows the presence of a fall. Something happened. A good was carried over. That's not why he keeps using the Crusoe example. A good was carried over. A good was rescued. But we live in a fragile, tenuous world. Very often, even though we do the best we can, we can't foresee the consequences of our actions. Things will play out in a way that's not predictable. Box is open, all evils fly out. A word is forgotten and cities perish. A lamp is lit and love flies away. Flowers plucked and human lives are for forfeited. An apple is eaten and the hope of God is gone. That's straight out of Eden. So Chesterton is saying there is more there and, and one of the reasons he loved Fairyland is because it's full of magic, these strange things. And magic implied for him a magician that all of fairyland had the so many of the qualities of art things created they could have been created differently um, grass didn't have to be green it could have been red chesterton looks at grass in like a child he looks at it and wonder because he knows uh, somebody chose it could have been another color could have been scarlet you know i mean are you following he's saying all these things could have been different so there's a real difference between a worldview that looks at things as fixed, which gets reductive, um, and a fairy world in which um, there are laws, particularly this law of conditional joy, all happening that depends on not doing something. So that in fairyland, human beings suffer the consequences of their actions. <clears throat> things could have been different. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but I think he used a, a sunrise as an example of that. Go, yeah. That, that man looks at sunrise and says, okay, well, the sun came up today. It always comes up every day. It's going to come up tomorrow. But Chesterton said, well, it came up today because God decided it would come up today. <laughs> and he, but it didn't have to come up today. Yeah. He has another where he uses the sun image too, and and, and um, I can't remember, but he, he says he was glad. Some people get bored because they know the sun is going to you know come up. He's glad because it comes up again. He uses the example of the little. He said when a, he said the 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 fact that you love novelty is usually a sign of a weakness in you. You know that you always have to have new things. Because he said it's it, it's you, it's just the opposite. It's it's repetition that is actually the source of happiness. And he gives the example of the kid um, who says, "Do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again." Yeah, when right. when the sun comes up, Chesterton's, "I'm glad it's coming up. There it is again. There it is again. There it is again." Because and here's his point, and this is one of the major points of the chapter. But one of the things that he took away, and it, it's the major, it's the ma one of the major lines of thought in the flags of the world, is that it could have been different. He didn't have to be here. His birth is a miracle. You know, he didn't create himself. Everything that he describes gives him a reason for gratitude. He's thankful for everything. It's not this dead system. It's living. It repeats itself. Um, at the end of the chapter, he says, thus ends in unavoidable inadequacy 
the attempt to utter the unutterable things. These are my ultimate attitudes towards life, the soils for the seeds of doctrine. These in some way, in some dark way, I thought before I could write and felt before I could think. That we may proceed more easily afterwards, I will roughly recapitulate them now. I felt in my bones, first, that this world does not explain itself. We can't know why. We can give an account. We can reason. We can explain things. We cannot know why. Uh, Mystics are always trying to get underneath that. Um, The world does not explain itself. It may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick with a natural explanation. But the explanation of the conjuring trick, if it's to satisfy me, will have to be better than the natural than the natural explanations I've heard because they don't explain. What they do is reduce the world to a system. It's fixed. It's determined. And and clearly one of his objections to that is it denies free will. Take away free will, there's no mystery, there's no adventure, there's no romance. Everything's done away with. It's predictable. The thing is magic, true or false. Second I came to feel as if magic must have meaning, and meaning must have someone to mean it. There had to be a creator, somebody who made choices. The grass was green by choice. The fact that no, the fact that it was green meant it could have been otherwise. Somebody chose to make it green. So all all the variety of God's creation shows a mind choosing. Um, there was something personal in the world as in a work of art whatever it meant it meant violently third I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects such as dragons remember in one line he said um, there may be more dragons in a fairy tale than princesses but it's good to be in the fairy world he's saying no matter how bad the world is it's good to be alive our first, the whole point of flag of the world, the whole point of it is, we have this, we should have this patriotic instinct towards the world. We were born into it. It was given to us before we have a right to criticize it. We were given a gift. The first response should be gratitude, not criticism. That's why I think he's got such a wonderful open heart. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects, such as dragons. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. They were given to us. Everything is a gift. We should be grateful, careful. And last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. It's as if I'm going to struggle here. And I think everybody will relate to this. Most of us are aware of some great good in our life. It can be our material possessions, our health, it can be our family, our marriages, our work, whatever it is. Um, Our world is full of sorrow. Sadness, violence, evil, is all, dragons are everywhere. But there's enough good around us to make us aware something's wrong. 
It's as if this good is a carrier. Something happened. Otherwise, how did the evil get here? Or how did the good, how was the good preserved? Why isn't the good overrun? The fact that it's there at all gives, left him with some sense as if, like Crusoe, you know, rescuing the supplies and everything out of his ship. It's like we're trying to hold on to something involving a loss. Um, there's some great good around us that we're, we're given in trust that we can hold on to it well, do something with it well. Last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good as Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. All this I felt, um, and the age gave me no encouragement to feel it. He grew up wanting to embrace the world and found everything it believed contradicted everything that he held dear. You know, he started with, remember, tradition and... Uh, um, Conservatism. Huh? Conservatism. No, he started with tradition and... Come on, you guys. Um, Democracy. Thank um, that, take, that takes away the F for uh, missing last week. Um, remember, he started with democracy. Thank you, Tracy. God bless your soul. Um, he started with, he held on to those two things. They were just given. The tradition was a good thing. It's the past. It's valuable. And democracy, the belief that if anything was worth doing, man should do it himself. He shouldn't turn that control over to other people. Because once he does that, he gives up being who he is. It's easy. It gets easier and easier not to be yourself. That that is to not take responsibility for yourself. One of the reasons he is so critical of these doctrines is that they deny free will. They make it easier for man to believe he has no responsibility for what he does. Because if that's true, he can do anything. Right. So there's what's at stake is not small. It's pretty serious. So he's holding those two worlds up against each other to, to help sharpen the issues, what's at stake here. Free will, the belief in democracy, that the important things should be left to individuals. They should be the ones to decide what they're going to do with their lives. Tradition is important because it's democracy, it's democracy extended into the past. It keeps alive the vote of the dead, that they still have a place in our lives. Those two things he carried with him, and, and he found that there was no place in the modern world for either of them. He found himself alone and isolated, because every, most people were believing in you know, these intellectual theories that we've just been going over. And he found a support for his beliefs in fairy tales, because of some of the reasons I've tried to point out here. Let me stop. Any... Because I've already gone. I told you I was going to limit it, and you know me. God, I'm so bad. <laughs> God. Um, any questions or it, um, any questions you guys have about the flag of the world picks up these same issues. Um, it, it really is an extension of the ethics of Elfland. It's a, Mark, just be patient. Um, I'm hoping that our classes will shed some light on these things and but I think the more you read him, 
the the easier it gets. I, I I just so agree with you. You wouldn't have said that if you weren't smart, Mark. I mean that you see that. No, no, because I, 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 you were right on. That's was an absolutely accurate description of Chesterton. He's so profound. He deals with the most ordinary things, like they're nothing, but they're just profoundly deep. Tracy, you had something. Go ahead. I want to go back to your question about, um, or your statement that reason, well, two things. Your statement that reason has to start on a self-evident truth, or it undoes itself. And we must recover the ability to reason today. today. Yeah. So, how would you put those two together? You know, the definition of reason is um, a cause, explanation, justification for an action, um, a good or obvious cause to do something, and then the power of the mind to think, understand, form judgments by a process of logic. So whenever we talk about reason, it's this like cloudy concept, you know? <laughs> so like if we have to recover it, what is it? I mean, the ability to think based on truth. So we were, a friend of mine, we're talking about truth. Wait, and wait, she's can I stop you there? I wouldn't say based on truth. Just, let's okay. get truth out of it just for a second. Not assume anything, okay? Let's okay. not assume anything. The medievalist Dante, Thomas, Chesterton, which I think Lewis, would all say that would agree, and this is Aristotle and close to Plato, but all of them would say reason is this faculty, this power we have, um, to get us from one point to another, one step to another. So, so um, I looked on the, uh, when I went into the kitchen today, I saw water on the floor. So my mind, I mean, the first thought was, where did the water come from? Must be a leak or, you know, um, or we had a, um, a guy come in to look at the fridge today. And I put out a bowl of nuts earlier, and I couldn't find it because everything was scattered. So it wasn't where I put it. My first thought is, it's behind all this stuff. You know, so I moved the stuff, and there it was. I mean, reason is just our, a power for moving from one thing to another at a, at a most basic level with our senses. So um, 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 I... Blood was coming out of my foot, and it was tr it was leaving blood lines on. These are I'm trying to use practical, real things, and I didn't realize they're there. And Suzanne said, "You're bleeding," and and I didn't know how. And we went back, and because I've got this wooden thing underneath the desk with cracks in it, the foot had pinched, and I you could see blood there. So we can we can make inferences. We can move from what our senses give to us to a conclusion. Yeah, so Plato, Aristotle, all of them, Thomas would have said, reason consists of, a, of what they call ratio, the power to move from one step to another, just as in a mathematical. I mean, Fred's you know, differential equation, I don't even know what the, <laughs> it's hard for me to even pronounce the words, but you know, that I'm laughing because I've just, I'm, so, I'm trying to, because I've had the same experience. You know, if he goes back to, you know, a, a treatise that he wrote 20 years ago and looked at it and thought, you know, did I do that? Um, but our mind can do that. I mean, particularly, you know, when we're active with it. So at a very basic level, the reason is a power from just taking things from our senses and moving 
to conclusions, to learn about them. So they would say ratio is one component of reason. The other is what they called intellectus, which means to grasp something as a whole. It's what angels do. It's harder for men to do that, but, but that's a power that we can grasp the whole of something. Because you know that you can take a step by step and arrive at the end and still not see the whole. You know, you can get 10 numbers, one, two, three, and not see, and Fred, I'm sure, could come up with a better example, but you, you could take 10 elements and, and have all parts there and not see the whole. So intellectus is the power of reason to, to put together a whole to, to see, and you go a high C. But ultimately, one of the things that this reason will do will, will lead us to ask questions about why are things this way? Where do we come from? What's the end of things? How do things get here? So we'll ultimately be concerned with truth. I didn't want to sh shortcut you there, but I didn't want to jump to it, Tracy, because I don't think you could, I mean, I don't think that's a good way to start because you're already assuming an end. Um, at some point, it becomes a concern. Let's say a, a child, a child doesn't start out five years old asking questions about truth. I mean, he, he may say, where did, you know, when grandpa dies, where did he go? Or where did, you know, you know I mean, you can start asking ultimate questions, but anyway, let me, I'm sorry, but that, I mean, my first thought would be, that's what we do. I've made the argument a number of times following these men, because I think they're right. Reason has to start with something self-evident. It has to begin. So, for example, um, the skeptic will deny that anything's there. Buddhists, Hindus, approach the world as if it's an illusion. It's not there. Maya is an illusion. It's not real. We believe as Christians, that particularly because Christ took on a body, if he's not, if he's, if a body's not real, then what does it say about him? You know. But um, but just to get to a basic sense, I trip on a stone and it hurts my toe. That's real. My senses are delivering something to my head. So there's self-evident things. Most of these thinkers, we, we've gone through this, most of these thinkers say that you begin with, knowledge begins with the senses. Remember when we were doing Milton, remember Milton was making the point in the way that he dealt with Adam and Raphael that, that we don't start with, he doesn't believe that, he's platonic. He believes that we have these innate ideas in our head and we start with them. The realist believes we start with our senses, our bodies. We stub our toe and, you know, we have to be careful of the way we walk. We have to bandage it. We have to do things. Knowledge start with our senses. We develop things. They, our senses become enriched. Our minds become enriched. We make conclusions and our thinking deepens. Um, I'm, I'm trying to help. I'm not sure that I am right now, Tracy. Go ahead. Also, another way to say, therefore, another way to say that we have to recover our ability to reason is that we have to get out of our heads, like you've always been saying, and recover our ability to base thought on concrete thing, concrete things. I, so, so take this step, like I, a concrete step from one step to the other, and then... Um, leading you to ask why, because yeah. nobody asks why anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think the reason I the gate tried to give the example of the stone is because that's a self-evident thing. You stub your toe, 
you don't question it. It's self-evident. If you that's the point. If you question that, where do you go? I mean, you deny your toe, you deny the rock, you know. Um, you, you, then you might as well deny that gravity has any effect if you take a step out your second story window and there's no balcony there. I mean, if you're going to deny things, what will happen to you? My God, you know, the physical world will take over. Or here, here's C.S. Lewis. If you deny gravity and you drink too much, you're you're going to learn because gravity is going to bring you to the ground. You're going to you're you're going to it's. I, mean, I think it's wonderful. You become subject to gravity instead of the laws of your own nature. You know, restraint, temperance, not drinking too much. So these things that what happens with our senses should be self-evident. This desk is here. I do not question it. If I question that, where will it stop? That's the point Chesterton's making, you know, about reason and Tracy, does that help or do you have Yeah, I mean I um you know I I put on public programs. Yeah. And so I have the opportunity to shape them and talk about them and promote them in such a way that um, promotes this or that uh, frames this maybe. And so it's important to understand it. Like from, like Mark said, a really practical uh, contemporary example kind of way. Um I'm going to go a step farther. I mean, I, to me, it's essential for you because you're dealing, you're in a field in which you're dealing with art and art depends primarily on your senses that you see a painting, that you hear a Bach fugue. You know, um, what happens in our mind, whatever we experience in the way of beauty comes through our senses. You take away the... If you take away... The importance, the central role of the senses in an art museum. Then, how do you exist? What do you exist for? People come to see a painting or to hear, you know, a, perform, a musical performance. Or um, so you, you're the field you're in. There's um, where's this? I don't know if you've. I don't know if you've read Maritain's Art and Scholasticism. Have you? Yeah. I barely understand it, but yeah. Okay, because he's got a chapter on beauty in there in which he's saying, you know, that that, um, that St. Thomas says, um, beauty is that which being seen pleases. Hold on to that. That which being seen pleases. Delight comes from seeing that work of art, the beauty of it. Not a concept in her head. It's right. so get, so Take away, take away our senses, get out of there. What's there? The experience of beauty is gone. I mean, it may exist in memory, but its origins was that moment when it was seen and it, it produced this delight, this pleasure in seeing it. Um, beauty is that which being seen pleases. That should be the defining principle of your life. I mean, you're, a, you're in a museum. Your whole life is dedicated to bringing these artworks before a public and allowing them to see it so that it can do its work, I mean, whatever it's going to do. I mean, and I'm, that's why I was so pleased to hear you were, you know, you're giving a talk because in some ways you've got to be bringing that stuff out, whatever it is that's 
You may have to tell me where I went wrong philosophically. You can read it. Okay. Um, <laughs> or I had no understanding of what I was talking you are, about. You are, I'm going to, they're going to, they're going <laughs> to, you are too damn negative, Tracy Robinson. No, I will tell you, I will tell you where you go right, and I may make some suggestions. Cut where you go wrong. Fair enough. That's where you go wrong. Um, clunk, clunk. Because <laughs> I, I've seen your work and I've saw your letters and you're there's, there's. I mean, your, you know, your presence on this program, your comments, your all that you do, has a beauty and a grace to it. There's nothing wrong with it. Put that out of your head. Okay. There's a <laughs> lovely grace to what you do. Be glad for that. Be glad. Any any questions? Any more or comments? Mark, you got something? I am trying uh, trying to grasp. Good. Chester is a good person to try to get. Just remember how wide he is. If you're going to try to grasp him, you have really big arms. <laughs> Uh, you know, I guess it's it's at least for me, and I never claim to be the brightest guy in the world. But it, it's like sometimes you'll read a sentence or two, and there's really a lot to think about. I mean, a lot to yeah. think about. Yeah. And it yeah. to me makes it harder to kind of focus on some of the other things, which then I'm afraid I'm missing something that I probably should be getting, and then I turn around and I go, "Where the hell am I?" Right. Um, right where you should be. Right where you should yeah. be, Mark. Right. So, no, I'm serious. Right. I mean, a great learning has taken place. Well, otherwise, why are we here? Um, okay. So next week we'll do the flag of the world. Um, I thought we'd go through two of these, but maybe maybe we'll end up doing one a night. I'm not sure, but I'm going to try to do two. I've been reading scripture, and I'm telling you, I I I'm not. A, I mean, I'm embarrassed because you already know this. I'm not a scripture scholar or I don't know scripture the way scholars do I'm hoping that'll be an advantage here but um, but I'm reading it like you guys but I'm amazed I've, I've been reading through the Gospels I've read the Gospels often over the course of my life I've gone through a lot of the Bible almost, almost all of it but not all of it but and I and I I think I have a decent grasp of it but I haven't gone through the Gospels in a long... You know, we get readings every week, so we're hearing them. And I read the Magnificat, the passages, so... But I've been reading through the Gospels. I am stunned, stunned at what I'm seeing now. Again, I mean, I, you know that that happens to me often. Every time we, when I did Moby Dick with you guys, I was stunned. Because it, it's just, to go back to these things, just... Um, Anyway, when we begin, just so you know, we're, we're going to do Matthew and John. When we begin, the first thing that I'm going to do, I'm giving away something, I shouldn't do this, but when we begin, the first thing I'm going to do is read the beginning of each of the four Gospels. The, the ground of authority that they rest on was so telling to me. Each, each of them begins on a different ground and gives a different authority to the Gospels. And I went online just to see what, you know, people, I, I don't know who to look for. Or, but I'm, I, I was quickly made aware of how many people deny the divinity of Christ. That 
people are reading the gospel, and and a large part of the Protestant world, the the um, middle church, like the Tractarians in the 19th century, deny deny the miracles. They're they're doing what Chesterton is describing. They they just read the 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 gospels in a very very different way. Whereas when I when I read a miracle, I <laughs> I see a miracle taking place, but um, but I was just stunned to see how different the beginnings are. So if you if you're up on Chesterton and you want to just get ahead, you might read the Gospels again. I, it's just an amazing experience for me. Or or if you don't read all four of them, read Matthew and John. Those are the ones we're going to do. But read the beginning of all four Gospels and see what you think. I was um, I was blown away. Anyway, we'll do a, we'll do a flag of the world. Flag of the world next week, okay? And maybe the one after, maybe the one. In fact, in fact, let's plan the one after because I I think I I can summarize flag of the world. I really do want to get on because the last couple of chapters, ethics of Elfland, flag of the world, and then um, the paradoxes of Christianity. That goes so much more directly to our faith. So let's plan to do um, Flag of the World and Paradoxes of Christianity. How's that, Mark? Paradoxes, if your mind gets twisted now, think about how twisted it's going to get when you have to deal with paradoxes of our faith. (laughs) Just to let you guys know, uh, Francis and I are going to be traveling next week so we'll miss you next Monday night but we'll catch you the Monday after. We'll miss you Fred. If you can if you're in a car driving just good luck with the paradoxes Mark (laughs) (laughs) let me know how that turns out (laughs) okay you guys have a good week alright take care Yep. bye. Have a good week